This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2020, one in about 45 people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the communities affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. My guest today is Christelle Younes, who is the former head of office with the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, in Syria. Christelle has also worked in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, and Somalia with different organizations. Christelle, a big welcome to you. Thank you for having me. Tell me about yourself. I am a Lebanese-Canadian woman who has studied law um, and specialized in international humanitarian law. And I've always wanted to work in the humanitarian uh, world and in the humanitarian field in general. And how did you end up in the humanitarian world? Well, I come from a family uh, that is quite uh, particular in that my mother is Palestinian, uh, my father is Lebanese, and we left Lebanon when I was three years old because of the war. Um, and so we talked a lot about wars and conflicts and the effects um, that they were having on civilians, you know, around the dinner table. We used to go every summer when I was a child back to Lebanon to see mm -hmm. our family and to see my cousins. Um, and so I saw from very early on the effect that conflict was having on people. And I always wanted uh, to, to be a part of the solution and to help make things better. Right. And tell me about Syria. What did a typical day look like for you out there? Mm, there was no such thing as a typical day in Syria. I was uh, basically running after emergencies. We would wake up in the morning and then check what had happened. Uh, during the night, I would check my emails to see if anything urgent had come through. Then I would go to the office and see my colleagues and we would discuss um, our current plans, but also any response to an immediate emergency that had emerged. Uh, we would spend a lot of time trying to negotiate access to people who we hadn't been able to deliver assistance to in a long time. Uh, we would spend a lot of time managing uh, emergency funds to try to respond to uh, small emergencies or even big emergencies that had come up um, and we hadn't budgeted for. Um, and we just spent a lot of time trying to align um, all the authorizations, all the agreements, all the access guarantees that we needed to reach as many people as possible. Right. And that is a crisis that's been going on for so long. In fact, right now I see uh, Mark Katz tweeting a lot about the fighting in north um, west of Syria, I believe. What was the most tough thing for you working there at the time? I think unfortunately the same thing that is that my colleagues over there are experiencing today, which is how incredibly powerless we all feel um, in the face of a conflict like Syria. Humanitarians uh, certainly never feel like they're the solution anywhere, but in Syria it's particularly uh, potent mm -hmm. how, how not a solution we are. Um, ultimately everything is very political. Um, and there's so many things we could be doing more and are not able to do because of the behavior of the parties to the conflict. And we often felt, I certainly often felt like I was being instrumentalized, like people were not letting us reach people in need for very particular reasons that had nothing to do with humanity or humanitarian principles in general, but everything to do with politics. 
And I think that's exactly what's happening in Northwest Syria today as well, and where my colleagues are really doing everything they can to reach those in need and uh, to protect the civilians who are there and are not able to do as much as they would want to because of the politics of it. Right. And when you're dealing with such a situation, you're advocating so much, but there is no progress at all, which I can imagine how frustrating that was. How did you cope with that? It's incredibly frustrating, but I think you cope by trying always to innovate and be more creative in your advocacy and reassess what it is that you can achieve in that particular environment. And really, even moving by one centimeter is, is moving. Um, and so you have to stay motivated, you have to keep trying, and you have to remember that uh, people you're seeking to assist don't have the luxury of giving up, and so neither should you. Um, so we try to constantly readapt, see where it was that we could make a difference, how we could move in one place, even if we couldn't move in another, um, and reach out as, as much as we could. Right. And how do you define a humanitarian crisis? I think a crisis is, um, is caused by either you know, the, a natural disaster, or the spread of a disease, um, or a conflict, and affects a significant portion of a population. Um, and often in those crises, we see a government that is even either unable or unwilling to respond to a large degree. Um, and we see people who are in need of emergency assistance to be able to survive or to attend to their daily needs. Um, that would be the, um, the definition of a humanitarian crisis to me. Right. And in your view, what are the main causes of humanitarian crisis today? Well, there are a lot of causes, of course, but today what we're seeing more and more is the effects of climate change mm -hmm. um, on population. The dwindling of natural resources is creating a lot of misery, is creating a lot of migration, but also a lot of conflicts. We see that in many countries in Africa where we have farmers versus, farmers versus uh, herders um, in uh, conflicts in, in many countries in West and Central Africa. Uh, we see this in, in many places in the world where really uh, the conflicts are about access to water, or access to land, um, and so on and so forth. Sectarianism is also obviously very much a, a problem, and we see that the emergence of extremist groups in many places in the world is creating a lot of tension, but of course those extremist groups come from as well a feeling of frustration and anger and resentment at governments that they feel have never really represented their interests. Um, so there's a variety, really, of, of causes of conflict, but unfortunately what we do see is that um, uh, it is not going, uh, any, it's not going much better um, these days, unfortunately. Right, no, I mean, they, they continue to increase. Now tell me, what is the key challenge when it comes to responding to these crises? I think it's, uh, it's very difficult these days to get people to really care about a particular place. Um, while we constantly advocate for people in need and we constantly try to get more resources and try to get political solutions, which really only happen when populations are mobilized, what we see more and more is sort of a disease of indifference, really. It's getting harder and harder to get people to really empathize uh, with those who are most in need. Um, it is easy to ignore the plight of people who are half a world away. It is easy to think that it could never happen to us and to not really relate um, mm -hmm. to these people. But what is shocking is that we are uh, in a very technologically uh, linked world and the war in Syria, for example, is certainly the most uh, mediatized and the most documented war in history. Um, and yet we haven't really been able to use that uh, to get the political solutions that we needed. 
um, it is getting really harder and harder it feels to 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 get the suffering um, of those most in need to, to really matter to, to those who can do something about it. Right. No, and when you mentioned lack of empathy, I completely hear you. Um, how does one get empathy? How, is there anything you think we could do to actually get people to feel a bit more empathy for people who are so far away from them? Yeah, I think it's very difficult, you know. I think it comes down to really being able to relate to people and to understand that even though these people perhaps leave, leave, uh, live a very different lives and very different cultures, ultimately we all have the same concerns. Our families, our loved ones, paying our rent, being able to get food on the table, achieving our dreams, um, and so on and so forth. And so I think really the more we can you know, present people not as recipients of aid, but really as, as subjects, as people who have a whole potential to fulfill and, you know, who are highly relatable, who could have been us. Uh, if we had been born in those conditions, maybe we'll have a, a better chance at, uh, at, uh, at getting empathy. But even that is not obvious at times. I mean, I'm in the U.S. now and I see the situation at the border where families are separated and children are, have been taken away from their parents and, uh, and this has been highly, highly uh, covered and documented and yet we are not really seeing change in policy and we're not seeing the kind of outrage that, uh, that we would have liked, that I would have liked um, uh, to be seen. So it, it's an ever-changing, I think, um, question to ask ourselves and we, we really need to continue trying to humanize um, the people who, who really need our assistance. Right. And do you think stories, fiction, books can play a role in this? I think they can play a huge role in this. I think they can really help uh, to you know, vulgarize, uh, as we say, a particular situation. They can really help to, to make a conflict or a crisis uh, much more widely known and understood by your everyday person who doesn't necessarily watch the news or who's not necessarily concerned about a particular place or country. Um, they can really help create characters in all their complexity mm-hmm. Um, that are not just, you know, again, recipients of aid or not just victims or, you know, poor people caught in misery, but are actually people who have people who love them and have families and have boyfriends and girlfriends and are sometimes good, sometimes not so good. And, you know, people like us, um, mm-hmm. basically. I think fiction has a huge role to play in, in, in humanizing um, those situations and in bringing people closer. Right. And have you read a book? Um, that was set in a humanitarian setting? Yeah, I've read several, but the one that, that's really stayed with me has been um, uh, A Thousand Splendid Sons by Khaled Husseini, uh, which is set in Afghanistan um, from basically the Soviet occupation to uh, the Taliban era, um, and that really has, um, has moved me tremendously uh, in many, many ways. Why did it move you? Well, I had worked in Afghanistan uh, for a couple of years, and when I read it, I was actually on mission back to Afghanistan. And it's a country that's very close to my heart. It's a really, really compelling situation, and a people that is so resilient in so many ways. They have gone through so much. Um, and that book depicts uh, the stories of two women who become great, great friends during the Taliban era. And they read, the book really does an amazing job at really depicting the life of this woman in all its complexity. You know, the, 
their family links, their love lives, uh, the friendship between them, but at the same time, the, the injustice and unfairness and oppression that they're facing uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and it's really helped me um, really look at the conflict and at the people I was meeting during that mission differently. Uh, I would go to camps of displaced people and every time I would speak to someone, I would remind myself that they had a whole story that I didn't know about. They mm -hmm. had people who loved them. They had parents, they had kids, they had cousins, they had fights. Um, they had a lot of things um, that I simply couldn't um, see just by talking to them for 10 minutes in a camp. And I thought it was extremely humanizing. It really helped me rem remember that these were people just like me. Right. And if you stay with this book, A Thousand Splendid Sons, is there anything else um, in your view that this book does to help someone reading it understand the crisis in Afghanistan more? I think it helps in, in many ways. First of all, it helps, um, especially, you know, in the Western world, there's sometimes a sense that these countries deserve what is happening to them, that uh, somehow very bad decisions have been made uh, along the way and that people pay the prices, but that ultimately it's their responsibility. And I think perhaps um, some sometimes it's true, but certainly many times it's not. And people are just basically having to cope with consequences for actions that they them themselves did not take or support in any way. Um, I think this book really also helps understand, uh, uh, helps anybody understand that humanity is really common to all of us and that it is not because we don't see a woman's face, it's not because she's under a burqa, it's not because she is being oppressed by Taliban's, that she's not a full person uh, with her own aspirations, her hopes, her dreams, her fears, her challenges. Um, and I think that is a tremendous, tremendous tool uh, in many ways that, that is given to the world through, through this book. Right. Anything else you'd like to say about that book? Well, just read it. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great book. I've read it. Uh, I read it a long, long time ago and I also remember it had this really powerful impact uh, on me. Khalid Hussein's books as well, Kaitrana, I have read is another one again set in Afghanistan that also stayed with me a lot. And I think it did help me to understand through the characters what that situation there was and how war destroyed their lives. Um, you know, you've worked in Yemen, you've worked in Iraq, Somalia, Afghanistan. When you think about those, um, in Syria, when you think about those countries, tell me about a situation or a person whose story touched you in a profound way and stayed with you. I mean, I was touched by many, many situations, but it's funny because it's not always the worst um, mm -hmm. that really stay with you. We see so much misery, but they're not necessarily the the stories that really move us or impact us the most. Um, when I was in Syria, I remember there was a town that had been besieged for years and that ha was being evacuated um, to Idlib, in fact. Um, be or, you know, people had a choice of either being evacuated to Idlib or basically going uh, back to living under the government of Syria's rule. And most people were too scared to do that, so they had agreed to be evacuated. And I was observing the evacuation to provide some form of protection to people. And a young man grabbed me by the arm and all he wanted to talk about was his fiancée who was living in another town who had been, that had been besieged as well. And she was also being evacuated. And he just wanted to make sure they were evacuated in the 
same place. He was really terrified that they wouldn't be reunited. He was terrified that he would lose track of her and that he wouldn't be able to find her. And that was, you know, after years of besiegement. Um, and that really stayed with me because it was such a, you know, a concern that so many of us share, right? Yeah. Being with our loved ones and making sure that we're together and, you know, and just the beauty really, and I know it sounds corny, but the beauty of young love, but in the midst of all this, you know, despair and destruction and sadness and, and, you know, it, it was both beautiful, but also really heart wrenching and it really stayed with me. And in fact, I really, really tried to help him uh, make sure he would be reunited with her. Were they re reunited, you know? They were. I mean, we worked uh, with our colleagues from uh, from the Red Crescent and tried to, to trace her and were able to put them both in, in contact with each other. And they were eventually uh, reunited, but they were very lucky. A lot of yeah. people weren't. Um, and, and that was also quite heart-wrenching to see the effect of war on, on so many people. Yeah, at least that's a good story. Yeah, at least it ends well. It, it doesn't <laughs> often. <laughs> Um, what is your greatest hope for the people affected by crises? I really hope that uh, we uh, come to a point where we really see them as subjects of their own lives, that they are completely empowered to make their own decisions, that we don't just see them as recipients of aid, recipients of misery, victims, but again, as people with all the the different shades of, uh, of emotions and with all the aspirations and challenges and flaws and, and qualities and, and, and all of that. I think we tend to paint picture with one, uh, to paint people, sorry, with one brush, you know, you're either a victim or you're, you know, a, a refugee or, but, but really these people are far more complex and they deserve to have agency over their lives. They deserve to tell us what they need and receive what they need um, and not what we think that they should be needing. I think we're making a lot of progress in moving in that direction, but I'm not sure we're quite there just yet. Right. And what one action um, someone out there who's going to listen to this interview or read it can do? Someone out there, really a common person on the street, what can they do to help um, address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? Well, I think there are many things people can do to help, and it certainly doesn't have to be, you know, going to a faraway land to, to work or to volunteer. First of all, in every community, there are needs. Yeah. In every community, there are people who need our attention, who are disregarded, who are invisible. The other day, I was watching a documentary about homelessness, um, and one of the homeless persons said that the hardest thing for him was to not be seen, to be completely invisible. People walk over him in the street, uh, they don't even look at him, and I thought, my God, how incredibly painful. So I think, you know, to just inject a little bit of, you know, awareness of the people around us is already enormous, and if we can be kind around uh, ourselves, it's already, it's already great. I think education is wonderful. I think, you know, for anybody to read books or to educate themselves about what goes on in the world to realize that it could happen to any one of us and that it's nobody's fault and that really we are the same people um, is also great. And I think, of course, if you can donate, if you can help a refugee, if you can host one for a few days while they find their footing, I mean, whatever little gesture one can make, um, it makes a huge difference for the person who receives it. There's no such thing as a small kindness. I think it really 
can change somebody else's life, um, even a, a very small gesture. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned homelessness. Of course, homelessness is a big um, issue here in New York. And I did go to, um, there's this wonderful lady who organized, um, she does outreach for homeless people. And actually one of the things she was saying to us that we can do is really see the people on the streets and even stop and say hello because they feel unseen. And you know, and that's something also you, you're mentioning from that documentary. Do you have any questions for me? I guess my question for you is, doing these interviews, does this change your uh, perception of humanitarian work? You know, um, I'm, I'm a humanitarian worker. That's a great question. Um, it has, they have not changed my uh, perspectives, but they are helping me to understand a lot of the nuances. And I think one of the questions I like to ask really is, how do you define a humanitarian crisis? And I always find everyone's perspective different and interesting but it's also helped me when we start to talk about the human stories of, of the refugees of the displaced people of the people uh you know dislocated by natural disasters listening to these their own human stories is helping me to see them in a whole different way because most of the times as you know when we are working we're always getting numbers mm -hmm. you know so getting that insight from a lot of you know my wonderful colleagues is is really good for me oh, that's great yeah i think we all need a little <laughs> injection of, of energy and, and optimism <laughs> from yeah. time to time yeah thank you christelle thank you so much for sharing your stories for sharing your perspectives and for your time thank you for having me ruth of course to the listeners thank you so much for listening you can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A. And my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer Jamal Swift. Music by the Nomadic Band.